0: Yeah, Uh, we're going to have a communion service after the message here today. So would you join me in Psalm 22? Psalm 22, uh, verse number 16, 17, 18. The focus especially in our thoughts here this evening will be on verse 18. Verse 16 reads, For dogs have surrounded me, A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Heavenly Father, there are places in Scripture that uh, we read and we stop and we think about and we're in awe of what has transpired here tonight is the night that we gather to remember the death of our savior and what a death it was and we know what it means as well and we're so thankful that you've given to us the word of god to help us understand and the Spirit of God to teach us and change us from the inside out. And the ministry that you've given to us, among other believers, to help us to grow, grow in our understanding and grow in our love for you. Lord, how could we not love you when we think of what you've done for us? Tonight we're going to spend some time just focusing upon that crucifixion, what it was all about. And we pray, Lord, that you might challenge our hearts thoroughly with it and bring us again to a place where we bow the knee and confess with the tongue, Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And may your spirit guide us as we look at these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you probably have caught on by now, it's been my practice this whole last year, every time there's a communion table set up, to take you to Psalm 22. Uh, years ago, it was Isaiah 53, and that went on for quite a few years. And we're here in Psalm 22, working our way through the psalm that really depicts very vividly, very graphically, the crucifixion of Christ. Now, our pace is a little bit slow. We only have four communions a year, generally. Uh, once in a while, we'll have five, so it's not very often, though. But the pace is slow for another reason too, because we really do treasure the fact that Jesus died on our behalf, don't we? We treasure that. We we take our time to look at that. But at the same time, it's not easy to look at that. It's not easy to intently look at a cross and contemplate the manner in which Jesus died. So many years ago, there was a dear lady in our church in Birmingham. She was well up in her 80s, and and, uh, every time, literally every time, I made a reference to the death of Christ. It didn't matter if we were Sunday school, or if it was in a worship service, or in a sermon, or any time. Even if it was just part of a verse we were passing through, and you bring up the death of Christ, you could see the tears well up in her eyes. And she'd pull out one of her handkerchiefs out of her purse, and you could see her start to go to, to dab up the tears. Uh, folks, I would never want to be so callous that a reference to death, the death of Jesus doesn't have a response in my heart. This is a, a passage that uh, we've looked at several times before in Psalm 22. we made it about halfway through so far. It's clearly, as we have seen with Psalm 22, a passage that only Christ could fulfill. There is no way anybody else could have gone through this. Even the author, whatever he was going through, it was David, whatever he was going through at the time, it was not fulfilled in David's life. David had some pretty bad days. You study his story there in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, First Chronicles, he had some pretty bad days, but David was never crucified by his enemies. God spoke through him, and literally beyond him, in these words, letting him express what it felt like to be persecuted by your enemies, and yet, to speak of Jesus, who would literally suffer for our sakes in the manner written in the Psalms, It's an interesting thing that really only God can do. If you ever wonder if God's Word is inspired, just look at something like that. That an author could write something, and a thousand years later, somebody could fulfill it perfectly, down to every single detail. And, and that's an astounding thing just to contemplate. But, and yet it was still true in David's life. What he was saying was what he felt. But he didn't suffer and die for you. Jesus did. We hear the words from the cross in verse number 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we see the scene uh, in front of us of the religious leaders especially. Spewing forth venom at the foot of the cross. I am but a worm, he says in verse 6. A reproach of men despised by the people. All who sneer at me, they separate with the lip. They, they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord, they say. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. Because He delights in Him. It's very interesting, those words. Psalm 22, 6, 7, and 8. When we compare that, and if you do this, you can follow with me. Put your bookmark right here. I'm going to put mine so I don't lose my place. And go over to Luke for a minute, chapter 23. We're going to cover a couple of other passages as we go here. But let's look at Luke chapter 23. Start in verse 33. You're getting closer to the end of the chapter. Luke 23... 33 Now remember they're sneering at him, right? They're sneering at him. They they they're saying commit yourself to the Lord if you let him let him deliver him. This is what it says in Luke 23:33. And they came to the place called the Skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing." And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. And the people stood by, looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him saying this is the king of the Jews and one of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Just like David had written. They sneer at me. They separate with the lips. They, they wag their head saying commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Go over to Matthew's account for a minute, chapter 27. Matthew 27, starting verse 39 this time. Matthew 27, verse 39. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, you, who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, in the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, "He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is a king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? They're saying the exact words that David had written so many years before. And that last verse especially, that's like, wow, if he delights in him, wouldn't God rescue him? Wouldn't that make sense? You know what? This is what's really cool. That last phrase you just read, you just saw. When you start to unpack that and say, where did that come from? Well, yeah, it's in Psalm 22. It's also the whole theme of Psalm 21. Now, some people say, you know, when God inspires the book, he even puts it in order. <laughs> and Psalm 21 and Psalm 22 are beautiful side by side. But you say, well, well, what's Psalm 21 all about? Psalm 21 is about somebody who obeys their father... Who follows His instruction and His Father delights in him and, him and gives Him, and gives Him, and gives Him victory over His enemies. And gives to Him His heart's desires. Let me read it to you. Psalm 21. It's, it's not very long, but listen to these words. O Lord, in Your strength the King will be glad. And in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. You have met him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. You made him most blessed forever. You made him joyful with gladness in your presence. The king trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstring at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is quite an interesting psalm. It's about a king whom the Lord has blessed. And ultimately gave him victory over his enemies. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, seeing Jesus with the title King. They mocked him. Here's how they said it. Really? Are you the Son of God? I dare you to come down from that cross. Matter of fact, how could you possibly be the one the Lord delights in? If you're on the cross and we're not, if we're the enemies, why are we not destroyed by you at this very moment? Why is it that we're winning and you're there? This whole psalm, they've turned over upside down. If, if the Lord will give you your delights, why are you up there? They're mocking him. They're mocking him. Put that with verse 8 here in Psalm 22. Commit yourselves to the Lord, they said. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. That's part of their mocking. It's incredible how they're just pulling Scripture out and throwing it at Him. If you are. If you are. I think somebody else did that with Jesus once before. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this high place because the angels will catch you. He's quoting Scripture. The audacity of this moment. You look at it with me and and you see the mocking that is being heard. You hear these things and you say, wow, this is what they did to Jesus. This is what they did to Him on that cross. But, you know, folks, there's a great sadness in all this. Because Jesus was on that cross for them, too. He was dying on on their behalf, too, if they would believe Him. But they wouldn't, would they? As we approach this cross, uh, the cruelty is all over it. The picture of torture is here. I just want to read to you a paragraph or two from J.C. Ryle's book his comments on this scene. This comes from Matthew 27, but it's so appropriate in our passage here. These verses describe the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ after his condemnation by Pilate. His sufferings in the hands of the brutal Roman soldiers and his final suffering on the cross, they form a marvelous record. They are marvelous when they remember the sufferer the eternal Son of God. They are marvelous when we remember the persons for whom these sufferings were endured. We and our sins were the cause of all this sorrow. He died for our sins. Let us observe in the first place the extent and reality of our Lord's suffering. The catalog of all the pain endured by our Lord's body is indeed a fearful one seldom has such suffering been inflicted on one body in the last few hours of a life. The most savage tribes, in the refinement of cruelty, could not have heaped more agonizing tortures on an enemy than were accumulated on the flesh and bones of our beloved Master. Never let it be forgotten that he had a real human body. A body exactly like our own, just as sensitive, just as vulnerable, just as capable of feeling intense pain. And then let us see what that body endured. Our Lord, we must remember, had already passed a night without sleep and endured excessive fatigue. He had been taken from Gethsemane to the Jewish council and from the council to Pilate's judgment hall. He had been twice placed on his trial and twice unjustly condemned. He had been already scourged and beaten cruelly with rods. And now, after all this suffering, he was delivered up to the Roman soldiers, a body of men no doubt expert in cruelty, and of all people least likely to behave with delicacy or compassion. These harsh men at once proceeded to work their will. They gathered together the whole band. They stripped our Lord of his raiments and put on him in mockery a scarlet robe. They plaited a crown of sharp thorns and in derision placed it on his head. Then they bowed the knee before him in mockery as nothing better than a pretended king. They spit upon him. They smote him on the head. And finally, having put his own robe on him, they led him out of the city to a place called Golgotha. And there crucified him between two thieves. The passage can keep going for a while. But it's very sobering, isn't it? In Psalm 22, we have a reference to the crucifixion in just a handful of verses. Picture it. It's right there in 16, 17, and 18. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I want to note two things here, and within those two things, two other things, okay? Does that make sense? There's two things, but there's two more things. I want to note two things, primarily, concerning the verse that apply directly to us as we're looking here. Remember, the whole point of the death of Christ is not simply to remember that he was cruelly tortured in the act of crucifixion. But as scripture precisely says, he endured this for you. He did this for me. He obeyed his father in dying for us. Philippians 2 verse 7, 8, you know the passage. It speaks of the fact that he emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He obeyed his father in going to that cross. Again, in Isaiah 53, verse, verse number 10, that's always stunned me to read. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Mm. Those words are powerful, aren't they? The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So remember, he did this for you. He did this for me. But the cross was not a welcome thing, was it? Even in Hebrews, it goes to speak of him in chapter 12, when it says, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. You know that passage, don't you? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He had his eyes beyond that cross. He despised the chain. But he's now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was on the other side of the cross that propelled Him to endure it. 1 Peter 2, verse 22, all the way through 25, some of my favorite verses. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile and return. While suffering... He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. So our first note. Our first note. Why did he do this? That we might die to sin. It said. And live to righteousness. I found that very interesting. This is my other two little points along the way. A simple purpose clause. That pops right off the page. He died. He took our sins on His body, on the cross, so that what? So that? What? We might die to sin and live to righteousness. That first little phrase, that we might die to sin, it's technically a participle in the Greek. We call it an aorist participle. Well, that's that's a description a participle is a a description using a verb to describe a person or a, or whatever it's describing it's using a verb that is a description of you and me in this verse those who believe in Jesus Christ what it says is that once and for all that's the error sense once and for all your sins have been dealt with at the cross <laughs> Done. I love to say it that way. Put a period on that one. It's not a run-on sentence. Isn't that great news? It's done. Here's how our English versions say it. That we might die too sin. As if that's a potential thing. As if that's a that's a big maybe. Are we? Are we not? I don't know. Is it a dream? I don't know. But actually the, the text literally would say That we who have died to sin might live to righteousness. Do you hear the difference? It's not a maybe, folks. Jesus Christ died in respect to our sins. That that would be done with. That's the significance of the cross. You know, we can never say it better than God does. But through Christ, we have died to sin. The whole argument of Romans chapter 6 is right there. Let me read to you the words. Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? You know what Paul said to that. Are you crazy? That's that's a paraphrase. Actually, he's probably even stronger. (laughs) May it never be. How are we, who have died to sin... To still live in it. He went with the facts. There was no maybe in that. Do you not know... ...he goes on to say... ...that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus... ...have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we've been buried with Him. That's pretty final sounding, isn't it? We've been buried with Him through baptism and death. So that Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For since we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. That's the whole beauty of the resurrection that follows. What a difference He's made. But the point is simple, In number one, He died for us, right? And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you died too. He died to sin. I like to say it this way. Then stop playing with it. It's not yours anymore. Leave it alone. Let it go away. It's not yours. He died to that. He died. He didn't die just so we'd remember as if make it a holiday. But he was cruelly tortured in the act of of crucifixion so that we would have a part in that death. He died for us. He died for us. What's point number two? Well, you're saying, what's point number one? He died for us. What's point number two? It has to do with an exchange, folks. I told you the center of the thoughts were on verse 18. Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, it says. And for my clothing they cast lots. Say, okay, yeah, I remember. When the soldiers took Jesus to the cross. Remember, they they divided his garments among them. They tore them. Except one garment. Well, that one garment just looked too good. Somebody was going to win it. In a game, right? They cast lots for it. To see who was going to get that. But after I've read to you what Jesus endured, the suffering that he went through, that was, most of it was physical. We didn't add the mental suffering here. We didn't add the psychological suffering. We didn't add the spiritual suffering. But that's all there too. And all that he endured for us, when it comes down to him walking to that cross, they took the very last thing he had to give as his possessions. They took his clothing. Nothing left. All his property gone. That's it. It's all gone. Do you know all four Gospels make reference to it? You know very well that some Gospels highlight this part and some highlight that part and all these things. And so when we piece them together, you say, oh, here's the story. Here's the little Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We mix them together to come up with the whole. Well, all... Four of them bring up the fact that they took his garments. John, for example, in chapter 19, says in verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garment, and they made four parts out of it. They tore it into four pieces. A part to each soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece. And they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. To decide who it shall be thus to fulfill the scriptures they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots psalm 22 you know it doesn't sound like a whole lot really except in the bigger picture i'm telling you before what christ has done for you and i'll show you another picture too In Isaiah 61, a very interesting place to go looking for a verse on salvation. But Isaiah 61, verse 10 says this. I will greatly rejoice in my Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks Himself with a garland, as the bride adorns herself with jewels in Galatians three verse twenty seven for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ and second corinthians five twenty one he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can you see the exchange? They took from him his garments. He gave to us new garments. Righteous garments. Robes of righteousness. Garments of salvation. I just love the picture right there. They took from Jesus something that wouldn't last. Jesus gave to us something that lasts last forever. You know the name Edward Moat? You say, well, I don't know. Is he from Hillsdale? <laughs> no, he's not. He's actually from London. And he lived back in the late 1700s. So you probably didn't meet him. His parents... Managed a tavern. They left Edward alone so many times playing in the streets. He spoke once of his childhood and he said, I was so ignorant, I did not even know there was a God. He was finally exposed to the Christian gospel, came to know Christ as a Savior around the age of 18. And you say, well... That's a good sign, yeah? He went into cabinet making. And he spent the majority of his life working in London building cabinets. Later, when he was up in his upper 50s, he felt called to go into the ministry. And he started at a Baptist church there in West Sussex. And he pastored for 26 years. The people liked him a great deal. They even offered him the church building as a gift. And he replied, I do not want the chapel. I only want the pulpit. And when I cease to preach Christ, then turn me out of that too. He died almost a hundred years of age. He's buried in that church church cemetery and you say okay what's that got to do with anything he penned words my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus name on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand and then verse 4. Verse 4. I love this one. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. He says, I want to be found that way. Folks, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's how you are right now. Dressed in the righteousness of Christ, did you know that? You wear the robe He given to you. You wear the garments of salvation in His name. You know what? It's not a fair exchange. We know that, don't we? They took from Him His garments, but He gave to us garments that we're going to wear throughout eternity. Simple points for you tonight. Simple points. Christ died for you. He died for you. When we come to this place, this table, where He told His disciples, every time He handed them the cup, or He handed them the bread, He said, this is for you. This is for you. I just love those two words, don't you? We're not just going through a ritual. This is personal. This is what He did for you. What He did for me. He died for us. But He also made an exchange <laughs> In the process, He exchanged. The garments were taken from Him, but the righteousness was given to us to wear. Like it says, Yes, we have died with Him that we might live in righteousness. That we might live to righteousness. You know, the only problem I have with that whole verse is that word might right there. Because that's the potential. Potential. That's where it comes down to. uh Yeah, I, I I see it clearly. I'm dead to sin in Christ. But the rest of this is, you can do this. You might do this. You might live to righteousness. And every time that word might it brings up, I get rather embarrassed to tell the truth. I start to say, oh my. Because how often we fall short. Of living out the life that he's given to us. How often we don't put on the robe it seems to wear. How often it is that we march off into this world. Even though we've been given the garments to wear. Even though we've been given the righteousness in Jesus Christ. Those words that you might live. It stuns me. I wish he didn't say it that way. Because now I'm convicted. Now <laughs> it just eggs my heart. That you might live to righteousness. But isn't that the thing that propels us? To hear it like that? If Jesus said that to you, you might, what's your first thing you want to say? I will. I will. And unfortunately, we come out saying it just like Peter did, huh? I will. The fact is, Jesus didn't die to give us a day to mark on a calendar. He died to make a mark on our life, right? A mark on our life that we might clothe ourselves with His righteousness and live in it. And live in it. See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present, yet far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all.